You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hi, folks, and welcome to episode 89 of the Let's Talk Photography podcast. I'm your host, Bart Bouchotts, and this is the show for February 2021. Um, Well, this show is a little bit on the late side coming out. Um, I did sort of move house in the middle of a pandemic, which proved to be quite um, stressful. But anyway, I am sitting in my new room. It's not fully kitted out yet, so it's a little bit more echoey than my old room was, and hopefully it won't be for much longer. But anyway... um. I still managed to take some photographs this month, despite all the chaos. And um, the other day, actually, I took a photograph that immediately inspired me to record an episode. I was going to record a completely different show for this month. And then this photograph sort of reminded me that actually there is something I do want to talk to you about more than the other thing, which I'll talk to you about in the future. That's a bit cryptic, but anyway. What I would like to do today is to share my love of one of the two features Apple introduced with the iPhone 11. Um, it's not specific to the iPhone 11, it's a really generic feature, um, but it I just love it, and I'm not sure it gets the, the amount of appreciation it deserves. So I want to share my love and hopefully inspire you to have some fun. I'm going to keep teasing you for a little bit longer. So when Apple introduced the iPhone 11, they brought with them two very impressive photography features, or two big changes, shall we say. One of them was extremely technologically advanced, and the other the opposite of that. So, the most eye-catching one was definitely night mode, where Apple used their computational photography chops to create a feature that would combine multiple frames from effectively a video into a single image that would allow you to take photographs handheld with your phone basically in the dark. I mean amazingly, amazingly low light levels. And night mode is impressive and cool and useful, and I use it. But I don't use it as much as the other thing Apple introduced with the iPhone 11. So camera phones used to have a lens, and then the next thing they got was two lenses, where you had a telephoto lens and a regular lens. And then with the iPhone 11, Apple took things up to three, and they added in the ultra-wide-angle lens, as they called it. Now, they've renamed things since. I think on the iPhone 12, it's just called the wide-angle lens. Um, but anyway, it's a wider-angle lens than what we'd had on a phone before. And there's obviously nothing technologically groundbreaking about a wide-angle lens. We've had wide-angle lenses for those we had photography, pretty much. Um, it's certainly a well-engineered wide-angle lens. It's Impressively small, good optical quality, you know, some good engineering there. But it's not earth-chattering in the same sort of way that night mode was, right? It's kind of a boring feature. Just, oh, look, we just added a wide-angle lens. But honestly, in terms of which of those two features has given me the most joy, it is the ultra-wide-angle lens. Not saying anything against night mode. Love it a bit. Use it as appropriate. But the wide-angle lens I use more, and I get more enjoyment from. And then really, in my case... It was the iPhone that reminded me how much I love wide-angle. Um, but it only had to remind me. 
because I've actually loved wide angle photography for a very long time. And in my DSLR days, one of my favorite lenses was my 1020 uh, from Sigma. Um, that's a crop factor 1.5, but you know, 10 millimeters still very wide. Um, so when the iPhone got the wide angle lens, I rediscovered my love of wide angle photography. And now it was wide angle photography in my pocket all the time, which is a luxury I never had in the DSLR days. Um, so I, got, I get a lot more use out of the wide angle lens in the iPhone than I ever got out of the wide angle on the DSLR because a lot of the time, if I was just, you know, out with my DSLR on a hike or a cycle or whatever, I would you I would only bring one lens because you don't want to be looking around the whole bag, and that one lens would be my eighteen to two fifty super zoom. That doesn't go wide, right? It starts at eighteen. So, the ten twenty when I used it, it was always very deliberate. I went out to shoot wide angle, but now that I have an ultra wide in my pocket, I can use it anytime. I can just randomly on a whim pull out my phone and take a wide angle shot. And I am finding that to be wonderful. I I just love shooting wide. So the, the, the what got me thinking about this as a topic, um, we we had a week of really terrible weather, like absolutely awful. Every day getting rained on. It was miserable. Didn't get many photographs taken. You know, still went out for my exercise, but I didn't take my phone out because it just get covered in water. So the other day, for the first time. In ages, we had a genuinely beautiful day as I went out for my lunchtime walk. And the snowdrops have just come into bloom because it's spring here in Ireland. And I wanted to capture the beauty of these little snowdrop flowers and their setting, which in this case is in the beautiful Carton House, which is right next to my new house, which is great. I can go for my lunchtime walk in the grounds of Carton House. It's a wonderful luxury the new house has brought. And really... To do that, the tool was the ultra-wide-angle lens on my iPhone. So I whipped out the iPhone, got down low to the ground, put the phone literally, you know, an inch or two away from the snowdrops, angled it up so I could still see the landscape behind the snowdrops, and pressed that shutter button, or the volume button, which acts as a shutter button on the iPhone. And what you get because of the joys of the wide-angle lens is a pretty detailed view of the small little snowdrop flowers, and stretching out behind them the beautiful landscape that is the Carton House grounds. So you get to have a flower in its context. And you don't get that without a wide-angle lens. And it just reminded me how much I adore having wide-angle in my pocket all the time. I should, of course, mention that there are show notes over at letslashtalk.ie. And in the show notes, I have pasted links to some various tweets and things, and also... A rough outline text of what I'm going to be talking to you about today. I don't read scripts. I don't believe in reading out loud. But nonetheless, I like to write down my thoughts and then improvise around them. So let's have talk at you'll find the show notes for the show, including the photographs I'm talking about. So the first one you'll see is an embedded tweet showing the snowdrop photograph that inspired me to do this whole thing. So, okay, great. So my phone may have a wide angle. My DSLR may have a wide angle. My... Microphone thirds may have a wide angle. It doesn't really matter how you get your hands on a wide angle lens. Having it, I would say, please, please, please consider using it. You know, play with it more. It's so much fun. So why? Why is a wide angle so much fun? You know, I mean, and this is not an exhaustive list of everything cool a wide angle lens can do. But in terms of my photography, the reasons I love my wide angle is what I want to share with you. 
So the first thing I love about it is that it massively increases your choice of foreground for the same background, right? So you're out and about and you find a background you like. A nice bridge, a nice building, a nice tree, a nice landscape. You find a background or a midground that you want to take a photograph of. But I'm a firm believer that if you want to get a good shot, you need more than just a good midground or background, you need a good foreground. And with a normal, quote-unquote normal, um, zoom level, your choice of foreground is quite limited for the same background. But because of the way a wide-angle lens works, it effectively shrinks the background. It means that you can walk really quite significant distances without changing your mid and your background very much. So this whole area opens up in front of your subject, containing lots of things you can choose from to use as your foreground without substantially changing the background. And that means that if you're prepared to, you know, spend a little bit of time hunting around, you can really have some fun with this. So, I mean, I just basically went through my Twitter feed trying to find some random examples, and normally I don't keep the stuff I don't keep. Um, So it's actually very hard to show how, how many choices you have, because I usually make a choice, take a photograph, and post a photograph to Twitter. But I found one place where I had taken two photographs within a few yards of each other of the same background, um, but um, taken with a different foreground by just moving with the ultra wide angle and just moving a few feet and taking a different shot. So this is the second embedded tweet in the show notes, and it shows two photographs of Jackson's Bridge across the Royal Canal on a beautiful, beautiful uh, morning, winter morning, frosty winter morning. And so in the first photograph, the um, the Jackson's Bridge has a little jetty for tying up your boat. And so the first photograph I took, I thought, well, okay, so there's a little thingy that you tie boats to. So I'll try using that as a photo, as a foreground. And that redu- resulted in a perfectly fine picture. But it didn't captured the frostiness as well as I liked. So it, it got a nice reflection in the canal, gave the context a very um, maritime seems the wrong word. It's, it's the canal, not the sea, but, it, you know, a, a watery sort of feel to it. Um, but it didn't capture the frosty morning nature. So I literally just took a few steps, keeping the bridge as the background. And then I took another shot, uh, basically with the wide angle lens right down to the ground and frosty grass as the foreground, along with the frosty jetty. And so the bridge is the same. Now we've lost the reflection because we've moved away from the edge of the water, but nonetheless, different foreground, focusing on a different thing, but the same background. So it illustrates the fact that it really, really does expand your choices. Now, something I probably should have mentioned before is one of the Ultimately, what you want is you want your photograph to be eye-catching for all the right reasons. You want, to, you want to shoot a photograph that stands out. You know, you post it in your Twitter feed and you'd like it to catch someone's eye. And the vast, 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 vast majority of photographs in the world are taken at human eye level with a, an approximately natural lens, right? Neither zoomed in nor zoomed out, give or take. And so the moment you whip out your wide-angle lens, 
you're already well on your way to having a photograph that stands out because it's not at eye level and at a natural focus, a natural zoom. It might still be at eye level, but it's a zoomed out view of the world. So, you know, you're already halfway towards an interesting photograph. Now, you still have lots of work to do, but you're already halfway there. Anyway, so the the great choice of foreground is definitely one of the things I love. So uh, the next example shot I have in the show notes is of uh, the a shot of the ruins of Tahado Church near Maynooth. And in the foreground is, basically this was shot early in the pandemic when stuff like groundskeeping wasn't being done. And so normally the, the cemetery graveyard around the Tahado Church is meticulously maintained, grass is cut, manicured and trimmed. And that's lovely. But a lawn that's manicured and trimmed doesn't have any wildflowers in it. But thanks to the pandemic, um, the tiniest of tiniest of silver linings, the grass at Tahado wasn't cut and the wildflowers were allowed to come into bloom. And I literally had the luxury of finding the most picturesque, unobscured bunch of wildflowers to use as a foreground as I liked while keeping the background of the church and the tower. And so some of the wildflowers, they had lots of dead, you know, the mixture of dead and live flowers on the one seed head. And I was just able to sort of wander around finding a clump of flowers that had no ugly dead petals. And the reason is because of the why. So again, just the luxury of choosing your foreground. So that sort of transitions to the second point I want to make. What you may notice, all three, four, all four of the example photographs so far, so far share something in common. They are both not at a natural zoom level and not at human eye level. Because when you have a wide angle lens and you want to get anything into the foreground, you have to get your camera close to it. Well, most of the time, unless you're peering through a hedge, there's nothing close to you at human eye level. That means you're probably bending down. In order to get anything into the foreground of a wide angle shot, you're probably getting low to the ground. And I would say, even if you don't have to, do that. Get low, because it really adds a drama. You're not getting a twofer, right? You're already not at the natural zoom level, so your photograph already looks different, but it already has a better chance of catching people's eye. But getting off human eye level doubles your chances. So getting, you know, getting off human eye level, even at a natural zoom, makes your photograph probably more interesting. But get off human eye level and have the wide-angle view, and now you're really onto a winner. And this whole idea that you can have both, you know, some detail and the bigger picture in view at the same time is very powerful. And by getting low, you really do get to do that. So, you know, get down, get down to the grass, get down to the flower or whatever. It's just getting down low really helps. The other thing, of course, is if you have a wide angle lens and you get low, you almost always end up with a big sky. And so if there is, I guess if you're living in a place where you have clear blue skies from horizon to horizon, that's not all that useful. In much of the world, the sky is an interesting place. And it's often not nearly as prominent in our photographs as it should be. 
But if you get low, you naturally end up angling your camera up and allowing that sky to become more of a feature in your images. So if you, you know, look back at the Tahado photograph, the sky is more prominent than it would ordinarily be because down low. Now, in the case of the Jackson's Bridge examples, the sky actually isn't all that prominent because it's not that interesting a sky. But a lot of the times it is. A lot of, a lot of my wide angle photographs, the sky is interesting. It's certainly a good way to get an interesting sky. Um, another one of the reasons I love to get low is because it lets you put context into things in a way that you can't do without getting low and wide. So one of the things I've definitely struggled with over the years is the concept of taking a photograph of a flower within a garden. You know, you, you would be in a garden and you would see a beautiful flower and in the real world that flower exists in the garden, and it's the flower on the garden. But when you take a photograph, either with the telephoto, it gets even worse, or if you just take a photograph with a non, you know, with a natural zoomed lens, you very rarely get the sense of the flower in the garden. You just get the flower. And that's often nowhere near as nice a photograph. It just, you know, photograph ends up being boring. It's, it doesn't feel like it felt being there. And the other huge example of this is what we Europeans call autumn colour, or my American listeners would call fall colour. When it's autumn time, and when the leaves are falling, you are surrounded by autumn. Right? There is colourful leaves in the tree, there are colourful leaves around your feet, and there may even be colourful leaves in the act of falling. You're surrounded, it's, it's an immersive experience, these autumn colours. And if you try to capture that with just a normal natural length lens, you don't get that all-encompassing feel of autumn around you. You just get a leaf or you just get colour in the mid-distance. And they can be beautiful, but I've never found that satisfying. It's always been missing something. I want the detail and the big picture. And... As soon as the autumn leaves turn, I break out my wide-angle lens way more often than the rest of the year. Because as soon as you crouch down, you can very easily have autumn leaves as your foreground and then the autumn landscape, the autumn scene as your background. And that can result in cool photographs in the most mundane of places. So the first example in the show notes under this is a collection of three images. They were just taken on a morning walk in suburbia, like absolute ordinary suburbia. But by getting down low, a footpath strewn with yellow leaves becomes way more interesting because you can see the detail of the leaf and of the trees. You get both in a way that's just much, much more interesting than you could without going low and wide. And the second example is um, a tweet that has two images and only the second of the images is shot at a wide angle. And maybe actually, I mean, I really only posted the tweet because I wanted the second photograph, but maybe actually having both of them here has value because the first photograph of the pair is taken with a normal, not, you know, normal lens. And it doesn't feel autumnal. I mean, if you pay attention closely, there are autumn leaves next to the green grass, if you look very carefully. And there's clearly some leaves strewn on the path and there's the odd leaf left in the tree, but it's not, it does not feel 
like a photograph taken in autumn. If you look closely, you can deduce that it was autumn, but it's not. It doesn't feel autumnal, even though while being there, it did feel more autumnal. Second photograph was taken a few hundred yards further along the along the canal. Um, trains approaching Maynooth in pairs. So basically, the the first and second photograph taken within a few minutes of each other. One is the train arriving into Maynooth from Sligo, and then the next photograph is a train from Maynooth towards Sligo, heading in the other direction. And you know whatever distance I can walk in five minutes is how far forward along the canal the second photograph is. But as as well as being in a slightly different place, it's the same setting. I don't, the photograph is still taken on the same path along the same wall next to the same trees, along the same canal next to the same railway line, on the same day. The next one, the second one, feels much more autumnal. Purely because I went wide, crouched down, and I had the camera right at the leaves. And now you can clearly see the leaves next to the green grass. Now it feels like a photograph taken in autumn. And really, the most significant difference is low and wide. Get low, go wide. So I, I do this so much at autumn time. It also works for capturing frost and stuff. So there's a third example, just as I say, I take more autumn low and wide shots than any other time of the year. You know, some joggers in the grounds of St. Patrick's College, by getting low and wide, they're joggers in autumn, not just joggers. And it's just, there's a real advantage to the low and wide because you see the leaves and their shapes and their colours in detail and then you see that the entire landscape is strewn in leaves, just like these. Uh, again, this is quite related again. Get close. Right? So, the reason the shots I've used so far have worked in general, certainly many, many of them, is because we're getting to low shots. Right? It's low and close. The and close is actually what, what really matters. So the and close, the power you get with the wide angle lens is you put it close to something, that thing can take up a substantial, say, half the frame or whatever, right? Or a third of the frame. And so it takes up enough of the frame to have some detail. But with a telephoto lens, if you do that, the background is effectively zoomed out massively so that the entire background of your photograph represents a tiny square of reality. But a wide-angle lens does the opposite. It compresses lots and lots of reality into a smaller part of the background. So the effect you have is, again, this concept of seeing context and detail together. And by getting right up close to something, you maximize that effect. So you can have really a very detailed small thing take up a third of the frame or whatever and still have two thirds of the frame to capture the full wide angle feel of the landscape so you can have detail and context together and that is that is hugely valuable detail and context together um the iPhone conveniently enough focuses nice and close, so that's great. So you really can stick it right up close to a flower or whatever and just go. Um, but if you're going to buy a wide-angle lens for your DSLR or your mirrorless camera, basically any interchangeable lens camera, I would strongly recommend that one of the factors you you build into your buying decision is close closest focus distance. It'll be specified on the lens how close it can focus. And one of the reasons I chose the Sigma 1020 over its competitor lenses is because the Sigma 1020 had a nice close focusing distance. 
And so I would always say, do that, right? If you're buying a, a wide angle lens, try buy one that focuses in nice and close, you know, 12 inches, 10 inches, that sort of range, or closer, the closer the better. Because it really, really allows you to get the most out of this ability to get detail and context together, which is just so cool about wide angle photography. The other thing I would say is, especially if you're shooting DSLR or whatever, shoot the night sky. Right? I have always loved the big picture feel of being under the stars. I don't want to zoom in. Well, I do want, but not in this case, right? There is great value in having a telescopic photograph of a beautiful galaxy. Gorgeous, wonderful, brilliant. But you need really, really specialized equipment for that. What is very different to that kind of astrophotography is a skyscape at night where you're looking at the big picture beauty, right? Be it one of the grand constellations like Orion or one of the, the major asterisms like the Summer Triangle or the Big Dipper, or maybe one of the other big features like the sweeping arc of the Milky Way across the sky. Right? When you're actually out at night, it's the big picture stuff that you're feeling, that you're experiencing. And if you want to capture that feeling, if you want to capture that experience, you need to zoom out. You need wide-angle shot. So taking your wide-angle lens out at night is extremely rewarding. Now, obviously, with a DSLR, this is way more powerful than with an iPhone, but always worth doing anyway. And you're getting a real bonus from the fact the background is being compressed instead of stretched. So, in reality, the Earth spins, and therefore the stars appear to rise and fall. But given the fact that we're standing on Earth and we see the Earth as our frame of reference, the sky moves. Right? Yes, I know it's just the Earth moving, not the sky moving. But from our point of view, the sky moves. The sky rotates around, as is the North or South Pole, depending on which hemisphere we're in. And the ad- massive bonus you get by shooting wide angle into the night sky is that you're actually minimizing that motion. The motion is lessened from what it actually is because of the effect of the wide angle lens. So that means you can greatly increase your exposure time without turning the stars into potatoes. So the stars remain circular points of light for much, much longer when you're zoomed out. And so what that means is that when you're coming to your buying decision for your DSLR lens, you don't have to stress about the F number nearly as much, even if you do plan on using it for astrophotography, you know, for taking skyscape shots at night, because you can get away with a 45 second exposure. Without needing a motorized mount to track the sky, you can just do a 45 second exposure with that wide angle lens because you've gone wide and the wide angle is literally shrinking the motion in the sky. And it's, as I say, I don't know of any better way to capture the feel of being under the stars than to shoot wide at night. And then the last thing I want to touch on before I wrap this up is I want to acknowledge the fact that it is a part of what it means to be a wide-angle lens that you get distorted perspective. That is literally a function of the physics of a wide-angle lens. If you have a wide-angle lens and you have rectilinear features, those things at right angles, and you shoot them off-square, they will distort. Parallel lines will not be parallel. They will be very, very, very not parallel. Buildings will keystone like crazy at a wide-angle lens, right? You get keystoning with, with any lens, but 
with a wide angle lens, it, it goes up to 11. Right? That distortion is real as a result of the optics and the physics. It will happen. So, what you don't want is for the distortion to distract from your photograph. Right? The whole point a good photograph is that the user's eye should be drawn to the things the photographer wanted. If the photographer, if you as a photographer are trying to show a beautiful landscape or a beautiful building and if the thing that catches everyone's eye is how it looks like the Leaning Tower of Pisa and it's all distorted and bent, you know, it's it's just massively out of perspective. If that's what people notice instead of the building itself, then you've failed at your mission. So you need to be aware that Wide-angle lenses will distort perspective. Now, shooting nature, that doesn't really tend to be that much of a problem because nature doesn't tend to have rectilinear features. So while the distortion is there, right, if you were to measure it, it's there, it doesn't distract. Because it doesn't really matter if a tree is a little bit wider at the top than the bottom or, or the other way around. It's, it's fine. It doesn't matter. Or it doesn't catch your eye, so it doesn't distract rather than it doesn't matter. But... A lot of our world is man-made, is rectilinear, and that distortion is something we need to be aware of. And I use three strategies for dealing with it. And there may be more strategies, but these are the three I rely on. So the easiest thing to do by far is avoid, right? Avoid the distortion by shooting level. In fact, not just level, face on, right? If you have something square like a building, you stand right in front of it so there's no it's not a skew across you know crossways you don't tilt your phone up or down and you keep your phone level with the horizon so on all three axes be square on to the building and then the perspective problems don't exist right if you tilt the camera in any one of those three directions you will get keystoning in that direction but if you keep everything perfectly square you won't have problems now, that works, and it doesn't have to be perfectly square, right? You can tolerate a small amount of distortion, therefore you can tolerate being a little bit off square, a little bit off level, a little bit off face on. But on the whole, if you like to not have to deal with the perspective, just shoot face on to square things, you know, rectilinear things in general. A day strategy, not one I use a lot. The other strategy is to remove the distortion. Fix it in post. Right? Perspective correction used to be an advanced feature. It wasn't even in the early versions of Aperture. You had to buy a separate plugin to do it. But now it's in my iPhone's built-in camera app. So correct, you know, this, the, the, the perspective distortion is not difficult to deal with anymore in software. We can just fix it in post. Now, as a little caveat on we'll just fix it in post, In order to fix perspective distortion, you end up having to, depending on which way the camera is tilted, so assuming the camera was tilted up, in order to fix the perspective, you need to stretch the top portions of the image and compress the bottom portions of the image. So in order to get back to a square image, you have, the, the editor will crop into the image, give you the biggest possible remaining square. That means that if you know you're going to be correcting for the perspective later, don't frame your shots closely, because then there's no room for that cropping to happen. So what you want to do is you want to be careful that if you know you're going to be correcting the perspective later, just frame your shots more generously, more, you know, 
give everything a little bit more room so that you have something to play with. And the amount of room you need to play with is directly proportional to how far off perfectly straight and level you go, right? The further you are off rectilinear, the more you have to correct the perspective. The more you have to correct the perspective, the more things are squished and pulled. Therefore, the more of a crop you need to get back to a reasonable aspect ratio. So if you're going to fix it in post, give yourself the room to fix it in post. So avoid remove are the first two approaches, but the third approach is often the most fun. Embrace. Lean in. Don't fight the distortion. Use it. Don't allow it to become a distraction. Allow it to become a feature. Use it to catch the eye in the right way on the thing you want the user looking at or to pull the eye in the right direction. Use it to make your photograph catch people's eye in the right way. So as we programmers would say, make it a feature, not a bug. So... This can be good fun with leading lines and things. Um, I have an, The first example I have in the show notes is a photograph of Maynooth University's new library, which is an extremely square building, very rectilinear in every which way. It's also quite big. But if you take a picture of it with a normal camera, the bigness, you get the feeling of the bigness. But if you allow perspective distortion, the bigness is amplified. So you it feels like a bigger building because of the distortion. The other thing, of course, you can use the distortion for is to maximize um, stuff like leading lines and things by having the vanishing point be much more dramatic. And so my final example from the show notes is of a train running parallel to a straight section of the Royal Canal with a straight towpath next to it, and there's no wind at all, so the train is reflected in the straight section of the canal. So straight lines, straight lines, straight lines, straight lines, straight lines everywhere. And they're all going to a vanishing point. And with any lens I would have picked, I would have had the effect of the vanishing point. But by going wide, you you, you exaggerate, you enhance that effect. And so the vanishing point is much stronger. You get much more of a sense of it long, straight, disappearing into the distance. And it's quite a long train. It's an eight-carriage train. But again, the length is amplified exacerbated, made more noticeable by the distortions caused by the wide-angle lens. That is the ultimate example of leaning in. That distortion is what makes that photograph strong. And that was not an accident, that was intentional. That's why I chose to shoot at the wide-angle, because I really wanted to emphasize that strong vanishing point, those strong lines. And the wide-angle lens helped, made it better, stronger, more eye-catching. So what I'm really hoping is that if your phone has a wide-angle lens, that you'll just use it more. Or if you have a wide-angle lens that's been gathering dust, blow the dust off. Use it more. Or if you don't have access to a wide-angle lens, consider doing something to gain such access. You know, buy a clip-on lens for your phone, buy a new lens for your DSLR, second-hand, whatever. But I'm hoping that you won't be afraid of wide-angle. That'd be terrible to be afraid of it, because it's so much fun to play with. So. Experiment, play, have fun. And if you can't shoot wide angle, you know, it might be worthwhile the next time you have a little bit of money in the lens kit. Acquire the ability to shoot wide. It really can be so rewarding and so much easier to make an eye-catching wide angle shot than an eye-catching ordinary shot. The, 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 
the fact that it is literally a different perspective to what we normally get is a real bonus. The fact that it strongly encourages you to get low means that it encourages you to get away from that human height shot we see so much. And so everything about shooting wide encourages you to make your photograph look different, to look eye-catching, to to stand out. It, everything about the wide-angle lens encourages you to make photographs that catch the eye. And after all, with so many images taken every day and so many images shared every day, if you can make your photograph catch the eye as someone scrolls by, there's a chance someone will actually look at it. And also, why do you want to take boring photographs? Point is to have fun, right? So a really fun way, have fun, excuse me, that was a bit repetitive, is to go wide. So if you can, go wide. Okay, well, thank you for listening to me drone on. Um, I think this may be first I'm about to ruin, but this has actually been an entire episode in one take. Usually I stop and start quite a bit. I guess it is advantages writing show notes. So detailed show notes at letsnashtalk.ie While you're over there, there's a, a section in the sidebar called support the show with big blue buttons from mechanisms for supporting the show. Um, Patreon is at the top of that list for a very good reason. Patreon allows you to efficiently pledge a small dollar amount per episode. There'll be exactly two episodes a month, one Apple, one photography. So if you'd like to contribute $5 towards me every month, pledge $2.50. If you'd like to contribute $2, pledge $1. You get the idea. Divide by two. The great thing with the Patreon pledges is that they're an efficient mechanism of sending small dollar amounts without PayPal fees consuming them completely. I get a very substantial portion of the money that comes in through pay, through Patreon. When people pledge one, two, three dollar amounts through PayPal, PayPal get almost half. That is how inefficient PayPal is for small dollar amounts. Now, PayPal is great if you want to once a year throw me a tenner, throw me 20, whatever. PayPal's brilliant for that, which is what is a PayPal link there too. But the PayPal link works really well for larger one-off contributions. Patreon is the efficient mechanism for helping me pay the monthly bills every month. Because they come in every month. That's why they're called monthly bills. And, hey, I just I just bought a new house. It was a little bit of help making the monthly bills manageable. Right? What I want from podcasting is not, not my career. I do IT for a living. Right? I push around ones and zeros. Podcasting I do for fun. And what I want is for the podcasting to break even. And for the most part, it does that, which is fantastic. But the only reason it does that is because of the Patreon supporters. So you guys rock. Every month, bills come in. Patreon money comes in. Take one, apply it to the other, and they approximately cancel each other out. The PayPal money is extremely helpful for the other things, the other costs that come with podcasting. You need to buy hardware, you need to buy software. There are sporadic expenses from time to time. And the PayPal money is fantastic. So I, the, the PayPal money isn't needed at the moment to pay the monthly bill. The Patreon money pays the monthly bills, but the PayPal money gives me the freedom and flexibility to improve my software to improve my hardware and you know the boom arm that's literally holding the microphone in front of my face is from the paypal money so there you know two mechanisms for supporting the show in very different ways and then if you happen to be a fellow nerd the next two ways of supporting the show are for you there is a referral link for DigitalOcean it'll allow you to buy platform as a as a service virtual machines lots of cool nerdy hosting stuff and the great thing with the DigitalOcean one is that you get a credit as well as me once you spend 50 quid having used the referral link 
And then there's a referral link for Hover.com, who are the domain registrar I choose to use for everything I register apart from .ies, which they don't support. Um, mildly annoying, but hey, it's really difficult to be a .ie registrar, so I do understand. But for pretty much every other domain on planet Earth, I use Hover.com. And in this case, you don't get anything apart from the satisfaction of supporting me. But if you use that referral link, I get small payment from Hover as a thank you for sending you their way. Okay, well, as I say, I'm going to wrap it up here. Let's let's talk .ie for those show notes and for those support the show buttons. Thank you ever so much to everyone who has ever supported the show in any way. It is greatly appreciated. There are no ads. This show exists because of you. Anyway, get out there. Shoot your wide-angle shots. Enjoy it. Whatever you do, till next time, happy snapping. You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hi, my name is Dave Ginsberg. I'm the host of In Touch with iOS at InTouchWithIOS.com with my co-host, Warren Sklar. We talk about iPhone, iPad, Apple Watch, Apple TV, and related technologies. We also have some great Apple guests from the Apple community that also talk to us uh, relating to any tips, any apps, any news of the day, anything that's going on with Apple. Please give us a listen. Our website is intouchwithios.com.